Uh, I appreciate whenever Ronald leaves. I, I love the book of Psalms, and it just seems like whenever he calls on me to teach for him, he, he's gotten to like a really good psalm that I just steal right out from under him. So I'm going to continue that tonight. I'm going to steal Psalm 57, uh, and we're going to spend a few minutes tonight looking at that. Um, what I appreciate about Psalm 57 um, is just how layered a psalm like this is. You know, at the simplest um, level, a psalm is just what? What does psalm mean? A song, right? The simplest level is just a song. Um, now, there's, I've heard some really good songs, but usually psalms only work on a couple of levels, right? I mean, a song's nice, maybe it gives you a memory or something like that, um, but it's generally just a, a song, and, and a psalm is a song. It's not less than a song. That, again, would be sung for the edification of God's people, for our, our understanding and our growth. Um, but in Psalm 57, we see that it can be a lot more than just a song. Um, obviously, it's inspired, but Psalm 57 shows us a lot of neat things that God does uh, with the songs that we find in the Bible. Uh, for one, we're going to see in this psalm some cross-references to other scripture and other accounts in scripture. But even more amazingly than that, I, I think within this psalm, we're going to see a, a prophecy or a promise uh, that will come to pass farther down the line in the Bible. Uh, in a very almost veiled way, it's pointing us forward to something that God's going to do in history. And it's something that really uh, only we that have the full scope of God's revelation revealed can see in the full color that's revealed to us in, in God's revelation here. So tonight, let's just walk through Psalm 57. I want to read the entirety of it first, uh, and then we'll go from there uh, and make some application. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge, until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory, awake lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth into the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And so when we see the picture of Psalm 57 as it's laid out in Scripture here, there's a few things that stand out to us from the song just as it is. For one, it's a psalm that seems to be written from a dangerous place. Uh, if you imagined yourself singing this psalm, at least as it begins, um, you know, you're asking for the grace of God because the person says, I have all these things going on around me. I have these calamities going on. I'm in the midst of danger. And so in a general sense, any person could sing this during any kind of trouble they're going through in their life. But of course, we know that David, uh, as he wrote this psalm, was facing a particular trial during his life. Now, the historical context that we have, at least as we see it from the attribution above the psalm, says it's a psalm of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, does anybody remember what that 
point of David's life was. When was David, when did he find himself in this cave? running from Saul, right? Saul had basically turned the whole kingdom against him. He had gone on the rampage. David had kind of snuck out, and he had uh, gotten the, um, the provisions from Abiathar, the priest, and he had gotten out of there. Um, but as it turned out, David, when he ran, he didn't just kind of run to the hills. He specifically ran to a cave, we're told. Look at 1 Samuel 22. I think I put it in there. Did I? Did I not? There it is. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. It's kind of a a fascinating picture we get of David here. David on the run. David uh, with not a lot of backing behind him to begin with. Saul with the entire kingdom kind of in his pocket. Uh, David runs off to the cave of Adullam. And we know... Who, who shows up first to be with David? It says there. So he went to the cave of Adullam. Who shows up first? His brothers in all his father's house, right? Because, of course, when the chips are down, the first people you hope to be able to count on is who? Your family, right? David is in a position where he, his very life is in danger. But even so, he would hope, and as we see here, that his brothers and the entirety of his father's house go down to him. Now, what are the odds that by doing this, they themselves are entering into some kind of danger? I mean, usually guilt by association means what? If David's head is on the chopping block and you go to be with David, what does that mean? Your head's on the chopping block, right? And so they put themselves in danger, but know who comes next. So that everyone who was in distress who was in debt, and who was discontented, gathered to him. Now, I think there's a couple of dimensions to this. On one hand, in a very practical way, I think this is a matter of politics, right? How how do you think the politics of the kingdom work out in this? The people are looking around, and you have Saul sitting on the throne, and, and things are going one way under him. David's on the run. He's the anointed king. What do you think these people think of the current regime? They don't like it, right? It says those who are in distress, in debt, and discontented. Well, you say discontented with what? Well, I don't really like the way that my shack sits on the hill, right? Or I don't like the way that my donkey pulls the car. No, they're discontented with Saul, right? They're discontented with, with the, uh, the, the current uh, organization of the kingdom under Saul being on the throne. And so I think there's a political aspect to this of David. that They're putting their hat in with David to say, hey, we're on David's side. If he goes down, we'll fall with him. But if he doesn't, when he comes to power, we will be on his side. But I think there's a a shadow kind of here of another figure, because when I think of a person who kind of goes out on their own, and all of a sudden they're drawing all of these, I don't want to call them misfits, right? But it kind of is that way. Who do we get a little bit of a picture of here? Who do you think? Who's a person that goes out, and all of a sudden they're drawing all these kind of lower end of society people to themselves? You're right, they don't, but I heard somebody say Jesus, right? It's kind of a picture of Jesus because we know that when Jesus goes out and he starts preaching, who again, he's, he's the anointed king, right? Who are the people that are interested in him? It's the lower end of society, right? It's the people, again, who don't have a lot to lose. Now, again, think about the people in Saul's kingdom here who are sitting pretty. We know at various points during this that Saul kind of turns to his court and says, look, 
we're all Benjamites here, right? My buddies, my family who I've put in these positions of power. Are you going to lose your power if David becomes king? What does Saul essentially play? The nepotism card, right? If you all want your position, you better not let David become king, right? But David draws the miscreants in some ways, and that's who Jesus drew as well. Uh, and so you get that picture in David's situation there. And so let's, let's go back to Psalm 57 and kind of break down some of the things that David says in particular here. These first three verses, I think that something that stands out to me about them is that they're, they're a little bit more general than, than just necessarily the specific instance that David is in. Um, it says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. If you look in your Bible, that word these is italicized, which means it's, it's kind of an add-in word that makes it a little bit easier to understand. But, but I think in this case they're making an assumption, which is that David is saying, you know, I'm going to be under the shadow of your wings until these calamities have passed by. But I like removing that these where he says, I'll be in the shadow of your wings to make my refuge until calamities have passed by. Now that takes it from being specific to being general, which is to say that in this calamity and the next calamity and every calamity, David makes God his refuge, right? God is the place where David is going to go because David knows that no matter what situation happens, God can take care of it, right? Now again, uh, we've talked in classes leading up to this how David faced a variety of challenges. Um, and, I, and I believe personally that God was preparing David to be king, right? David, as he is in the fields and watching sheep and has to fight lions and bears, as he goes on to fight Goliath and all of these things, God is preparing him to be the man he needs to be to be king, right? So David knew no matter what situation he came to, he could, just like with Goliath, with Goliath, he wasn't looking at him and thinking, well, this is unlike anything I've ever done before. How am I going to do this? He looked at Goliath and said, oh, this is just like the other time that God protected me, delivered me, got me out of this, right? And so I think David, in a general sense here, says, I know that God's going to be my refuge no matter what the issue is. And also like the assurance when David says, I'll make you my refuge until these calamities have passed by. You know, there's a certain kind of assumption in there when David says, I'm going to make you my refuge until these calamities have passed by. To say that, he has to assume that eventually the calamities are going to do what? Pass by, right? That they're going to come to an end. Now, again, a lot of times when we get into some situations, the feeling that we have is we go, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this, right? Maybe I'm going to go to the grave before I ever see the end of this problem. And that may be the case, but David at least has the confidence to say, God is going to take care of my problems. He is going to protect me and take care of me, and the trouble will pass by. He goes on to say, I will cry out to God most high. Now, I want you to kind of put a pin in that and remember it, because you know, when we think about God in the Bible, God reveals himself um, Maybe slowly is the wrong word, but God reveals himself a piece at a time. You know, God reveals himself to Abraham in one sense and tells Abraham to go and do something, to go to the land of Canaan. But it's really not until Moses that God says, 
I'm going to reveal my name to you. I'm Yahweh. I'm Jehovah, right? I, I am the, the God. I am who I am. And God reveals himself under several different names. Well, when you read God Most High, uh, where you, you see that, I think, the most relevantly, that's not probably even a word, but where you see that that kind of has the most relevance uh, is in the story of Abram and Melchizedek. Now, you remember Melchizedek, he is a, um, a priest of Salem. He's a Gentile priest. Uh, and yet when he blesses Abram, he, he gives him a blessing from God Most High. Now, it seems to be a Gentile name, a, a Gentile name that they would have given to Jehovah, right? The one true God. We know that, you know, after the time of the flood, what all peoples had interactions with God after the time of the flood? From what the Bible says, it seems that all peoples did. Uh, we know even during the time of the Exodus, Moses flees off into Midian and he marries the daughter of who? Who does Moses marry the daughter of? His name's Jethro. What's his job? He's a priest, right? He's the high priest of Midian. There's a priest of Jehovah in Midian, right? It's a foreign country. It's over here. And yet this guy later on in Exodus, he actually leads a worship to God with Moses and Aaron kind of sitting in audience, right? And so God has priests everywhere. And in the case of Melchizedek, he used this name, God Most High. And David uses it here saying, I call out to God Most High. Now, just on, on the front level, what does God Most High mean? What are we saying about God when we say God Most High? Nobody above him, right? He, he is the God above all things. Now, specifically, he's the God above all gods, right? He's the most high God. Uh, he is the most powerful God. There is no other God but he. But the God most high is the God that can take care of everything, right? Whatever calamity, whatever problem David has, he can call upon the God most high, the rock that is higher than him, to know that God is going to take care of him and be on his side. He even says to God who performs all things for me. David is a man, when he looks at his life and looks at the good things in his life, how much of that does he attribute to God? All of it. Every bit of it. I think that's a problem that sometimes uh, we, and I don't want to say we think of God like Santa Claus, but when I was a kid and I remember for Christmas, like, you know, you get presents from your grandma, you get presents from the family, but the best presents come from who? Santa Claus, that's where the best presents come from. Sometimes I think we think that God, he sends down the really good blessings, right? The ones that we note and go, wow, that had to be the providence of God. That had to be God giving me the best blessing. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says all good things come down from God. And, and I've, I've often thought to myself, because we don't understand providence, and so sometimes a good thing happens to us, and we think, well, is it the providence of God? You know, should I pray and think... What I've come to is this. If something good happens in your life, thank God for it, because all good things come from him. Now, how his providence worked it out, we can't fully understand that. But if it's good, it's from God. That's the only place that good things come from. And so David says, God performs all things for me. He says, he shall send from heaven and save me. But note on the other side of that, he reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Now, Ronald's spent a long time talking about how it kind of confuses us in the Psalms sometimes that the language is very negative towards people, right? It says God, you know, he, he's going to crush these people or destroy these people. Or here, he's going to reproach the one who would swallow me up, literally shame them, right? 
But I think this psalm does a good job of showing us that it's just two sides of the same coin. Okay, it's two sides of the same coin. Because when David says, he shall sin from heaven and save me, in that same thought he says, he reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Now, for some reason, we're fine with the idea that God would save us or get us out of a bad situation. But we don't like the idea that on the flip side of that coin, that means he's defeating somebody else in the process. But we have to remember when we ask God for something, we're also at the same time kind of asking for the inverse of something, okay? So again, if we're in an armed conflict in who knows where, whatever country, and we say, God, we pray that our, our fighting men and women would come home and peace would reign, God may give us that prayer, but there's some realities on the flip side of that prayer, right? Some things that might be gruesome might have to happen for that prayer to come true, right? And because at times, especially when people are hurting people, when we ask God to save those people, the people that are being hurt, what about the people that are doing the hurting? They have to be defeated, right? And, you know, it's, it's the same thing when we extrapolate it all the way out to the day of judgment, right? Because, again, sometimes I think there's this, this idea that on the day of judgment, we're all, all of us who are saved will be standing kind of on the rim of hell looking down and just shedding tears and going, oh, man, I'm so sad for the people down there. I don't think that's what it's going to be like at all. I think we're going to look and say, God got it exactly right. And every hurt, every pain, every sin is down there, right? It's gone. It's taken care of. He has saved us. And to do that, evil has to be destroyed. And I think that's what David sees. Um, any thoughts on that before we go on? Ronald is always good about to stop and get comments. So I think I should probably follow in his steps on, on that. Um, one, one last thing here, he says, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. One, I think what's interesting about that is, so far we're really focusing on this context of a specific struggle that we experience on the human level. Um, as we go through our lives, there's things that happen that just knock us off our feet. I can think of a handful of things in my life um, that just are, are kind of touchstone moments where it felt like my world was falling apart. Different things happen, whether it be health-related, job-related, money-related, whatever, where you think this is the end. You know, th this is, you know, my life is effectively over. Everything is messed up. And we get into these situations, and what tends to happen is we view the universe as if who is the main character of this story. God. Well, we should view it as God, but a lot of times we view instead of God, we say, we're the main character of this story. You know, I, as I think about it, sometimes I start to ask, especially when we ask God questions like, God, why would you let this happen? God, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow me to go through this? I think sometimes that, that reveals that we think that we're the main character of life's story, right? That everything that happens revolves around us, when in reality, that's not the truth. Yes, exactly. Because in that moment, <laughs> in the moment is the worst time to judge something. And I think, you know, as, as I've gotten older and I've listened to the wisdom of those who've come before me, no matter how bad things seem, it seems like wise advice is always take a breather, take a day or two to pray, take a week to kind of let things settle down before we declare the world's over. Right. Because usually the younger you are, you want to just say it's all done. Yes, sir.
<laughs> sure. Yes. And so we're always dependent on someone. Exactly. Nobody lives and dies to themselves. We're all, we all rely on God. But what I love about this part is when he says, God shall send forth his mercy and truth, he's expanded out now to the big picture, okay? No matter what happens with me, which is that God, God can save me, God will take care of me, but ultimately, God's going to send forth his mercy and truth. That's what the world needs, right? It needs God, who is the main character of the story, to save everyone. And David says no matter what happens effectively, God's going to send forth his mercy and his truth. Now, that's a comfort to me. It's not comforting if that means I don't get a good answer to my story, if I have to go through hard times. But no matter what happens to me, God's going to be merciful. God's truth is going to win. And I think that David sees that and knows it. And again, we, we, through this psalm, we get some, some zooms out, zooming out to see that big picture where David knows no matter what happens to me, good is going to win in the end. Let, let's go on to verse 4 and 5. Here's where we see, again, David's direct issue. He says, My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. This picture, and I love the poetic language David uses because he ties in all of these potential life-threatening dangers in this language. What all life-threatening dangers do we see that David brings in here? What are some of the pictures? Lions, right? What's a lion going to do? A lion is something that can rip and devour and tear to shreds. So we see beasts, right? Wild beasts. What other pictures do we see of danger? Fire, fire right? I'm a, I lie among the, the sons of men who are set on fire. And what's the last one kind of grouped there? Spears, arrows, sharp swords, right? So you have pictures of wild beasts, chaotic, you know, evil that's going to destroy him. You have fire, which again, fire is no respecter of person. It just spreads and destroys. And then you have spears and arrows and sharp sword, which are pictures of war, right? And so David says, all around me are all these different kinds of things, but all of these are personifying who? Well, God, God has some of these aspects too, but when he says, my soul is among lions, he says, I lie among the sons of men, right? Um, and so God, he, God has the power of all these things. God's more powerful than all these things. But what I think is interesting is, as much as I would be scared to meet a lion on the road somewhere out of nowhere, as, as much as I'd be scared to be trapped in a, a house that's on fire, or it'd be in the middle of, of a conflict or have a sword coming towards me, the scariest thing really in this life to us or who? other people. At least that's what it seems like, right? I, I remember, and do you, I'm sure most of us in here remember the, um, the Boston Marathon bombing when that happened. It was a terrible thing, right? Lots of, you know, death and, and injury and all this happened. And the police went on this chase with the, the brothers who did this, and they uh, took one of them down. But I'll never forget being younger and watching this, and it was an aerial kind of helicopter view of them flying over Boston. And this youngest guy that did this, I think he was hiding in the back of a boat in somebody's backyard, but the entire city was on lockdown. Everything was locked down. They were looking everywhere. And what came to my mind was just imagine the power that one person has, right? For good and for evil. Now that entire city was locked down because of two men really, but at that point it was for one guy, right? For one man. 
And so again, when I view this, David, now again, we can say all day, well, men can only kill us, men can only hurt us. But in this situation, at least from the, the vantage point, people are scary. Now, not only that, obviously people can hurt you and kill you, but note specifically, David doesn't just say they have spears and arrows or they have sharp swords. He said whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue a sharp sword. What kind of warfare is David coming under here? Verbal warfare. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what Ronald has mentioned, I think, recently, too. The Bible talks so much about the da- the, what damage the tongue can do. And so, yeah, these are men that can kill him. But it's another thing, too. It's a scary thing to leave somewhere and know that somebody like Saul can tell everybody else whatever he wants to say about you. He can lie about you. He can curse you. He can convince everybody that you've done all of these things when in reality it's not true. Right. And David obviously had support. He had people that came to him. But that destruction of your reputation is something that in some cases you can't do anything about. You know, that, I've always heard people say, yes, sir. The media, yeah, exactly. Saul is the media, right? Because he's the one that controls whatever word goes forth, whatever people are hearing, and it's just whatever he wants it to be. And so David, you know, David has a good reputation, but there's times where people can destroy your reputation on a lie, and there's nothing you can do about it. But note again what David says. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. This seems like two unrelated thoughts, right? You have one saying, here's what I'm in the middle of. I'm among lions. There's, there's men who are set on fire. Their tongues and their teeth are against me. And then he immediately says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. The God most high. What's the relationship between these? Here's the lions and the men that want to destroy me. God be exalted. What's the connection here? God's got the control. It's almost, again, and I don't know, sometimes I guess I've heard people say that if you're, if you're afraid or something, maybe repeat something to yourself, some kind of affirmation, some knowing thing, maybe a prayer, right? It's like as if David sees the danger over here, but then all he's saying is, God, be exalted even higher, right? You be God most high. You're over everything. You have all control. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. It goes back to the last verse. We said God's mercy and truth will go out. He knows as long as God is glorified, everything else will take care of itself, right? That's exactly what he sees. Now, uh, going on to verse six, this is where I think this is the heart of this psalm. And funny enough, it falls almost exactly right in the middle of it. Um, and it's here that the, the, the hinge of the psalm turns, right? We see it says, they have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Now that's really interesting, right? It, it, David says here, I know that there's an intentional effort to snare me, to trap me. Now, again, to go along with that, if you're a military person, how smart is it to go inside of a cave? Unless there's an outlet back that way that you can get out of, it's not a good idea to put yourself in a cave, right? With your back to the wall, literally. Now, here David says, from everything I see, they've prepared a net for my steps. They can build a barricade around me, and there's no chance I'll get out. And because of that, he says, my soul is bowed down. There is a real depression element here. The way everything looks, it looks like, oh, I'm in trouble. I'm going to be defeated here. It says they have dug a pit 
before me. Now, again, day to day, I don't usually make a habit of falling into pits, right? Usually there's not a lot of pits open in front of me. But that image of a pit, I mean, the time I see the most pits, I'm going to be honest to you, is when I go to the gravesite. That's where you see a pit, right? That's a pit that's about to be filled. That's the image I get here. They've got a pit. They've dug a pit before me. Essentially, I see that as a grave, right? They want David to get down into that grave and kill him. But then he says, into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Now, that's faith. Not because David is in that cave and he says, oh, but they, they haven't thought of this brilliant military strategy I have. I've thought of something amazing beyond their recognition. That's not what he's talking about. He's still in the exact same situation, but he looks at it and knows God's on my side. They're the ones in trouble. They're the ones in danger, right? Not me. It's them. They have fallen into the midst of it. And when I think of this, there is this kind of thing in the Bible where evil ultimately becomes its own undoing. Okay, evil defeats itself. God turns it in on itself. Look at 1 Samuel 24. This is an example, really, of the story of where David is in this cave. It says, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. Now, I'm not trying to shame Saul here or try to make this funny, though I think bathroom humor is sometimes funny, right? This is a very human thing where Saul is on his way to look for David, and he comes to this road, and there's a cave, and Saul just needs to take care of his business, right? He does. And it just so happens that David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. How many caves do you think there were in the land? There were probably several caves, right? There's probably a lot of different ways that Saul could have, you know, ways he could have been going, places he could have been, but it just so happens it's right here that Saul goes in by himself, right? You don't bring the bodyguard with you to do this. This is something you take care of on your own. And then, then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you, may, it, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, did David ultimately use this opportunity to kill Saul? No, he didn't. But what David learned from it and what Saul learned from it is what? God's on David's side. If David wanted to get you, he could have got you a long time ago, right? You're not going to be able to hurt him, and God protected him. I think I see a parallel concept of this where evil kind of undoes itself. In an odd way, look at John chapter 13 and verse 27. This is in the context of the Last Supper. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Who's him in this context? You remember? Judas. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now, I'm not going to go into a theological conversation about what it means that Satan entered Judas and all these things. What I think we can glean from it is the will of Judas was to do what? Betray Jesus. Satan's will was to have Jesus betrayed so that Jesus would be what? Crucified. It seems that Satan's intention was to work towards having Jesus crucified. I'll be honest with you, I think that in the crucifixion, God played the greatest trick in the history of mankind on the devil. Because the devil thought what? If I can just get him where? If I can just get him on that cross. The devil said, never in my life have I been able to kill God until the day. Now I can kill him. Now I can be done with God. Then what happened? Evil undid itself, right? 
It was through that. Go to Colossians 2.15. It says, Jesus, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, principalities and powers there is likely a reference to spiritual principalities and powers, the devil and his angels. But Jesus, who was crucified naked in the most humiliating death in all of history, says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Through the crucifixion, God flipped the table, didn't he? He turned everything back on Satan, and he did it through the intentions and the evil intentions of the devil. And he did the same thing with Saul. And so we see that here with David. We're running out of time. Let's go on to verse 7 through 8. There's one more thing that I want to hit here. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake my glory. Awake lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. The thing to note here is David, when he sees that the enemies are going to be defeated, he, he says, my heart is steadfast. I'm believing in God. I will sing and give praise. Awake lute and harp. If you are hiding in a cave, is your first inclination to sing and play a musical instrument? No, because if you do that, what's going to happen? They're going to hear you, right? But David's joy here is saying, I want to praise God and I don't care who hears it, right? God's going to deliver me. I know it. He, says, he even says, I will awaken the dawn, right? If there's dark clouds, if there's darkness, it's all going to turn to light because of what God's going to do for me. And then finally, verses 9 through 11 here. He says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches under the heavens and your truth under the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. I think here is something, when we come to the end of this psalm, yes, David was in a bad situation. Yes, he knows God will take care of him. But ultimately, he said, the main thing is God's going to be exalted. He's going to be glorified. And we're going to see the fruit of that. Well, note what he says here. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. Now, in, in the Old Testament sense, when David says nations, that word is filled with meaning. What does he mean by the nations? Who were the nations? Well, well, Israel would be the people that he was around. But when he says the nations and the peoples, usually in the Old Testament, that's referring to everybody else, right? The, Israel is God's people, and then he says, when I sing to you among the nations, that means, hey, it's everybody who's outside of Israel, right? And in fact, my Bible has a little uh, notation here that when it says nations, there it actually says Gentiles, right? I will sing to you among the Gentiles. Now, that's really interesting that David, he goes through all this thing, and he says, because of what God does, I'm going to sing your praises even among those people outside of Israel. And that, that leads to a really interesting connection in this psalm. Let's go back to verse 1 really quickly. He said, Be merciful to me, O God, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. When I hear in the shadow of your wings, my brain immediately goes to another Old Testament story, a story actually about David's grandmother, maybe great-grandmother, I'm trying to remember, who was David's grandmother? Anybody remember? Somebody knows. She has a whole book of the Bible about her. Ruth, right? Ruth. Who was Ruth? Do you remember? She, 
Ruth is a, it was the daughter-in-law uh, of Naomi. We're familiar with the story of Ruth and Naomi, right? Uh, we know a lot from that story. Go to Ruth 1. Uh, we'll, we'll go through this pretty quickly. We see in this story that there's a man named Elimelech and Naomi. They move out of Judah to go to the country of Moab. Okay, Now, Moab, that was a pagan nation. That was away from God's people. And while they're there, if we can go on, we see that her sons actually married Two women, one named Orpha and one named Ruth. And if you go in verse 5, it notes there that both of the sons died so that you have Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, right? They're in the land of Moab. In fact, Ruth is called the Moabitess, okay? She is a Gentile. She's a Gentile woman. And yet what we're going to see in the story of Ruth, go on to Ruth 1.16. It's here where Naomi says, look, you girls go back to your daddy's house, there's, I've got nothing to give you. There's nothing for you back in Bethlehem. You just go back to Moab. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from falling after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Ruth made an outright decision. I'm going to leave the gods of Moab behind and I'm going to serve Jehovah God. I'm going to go with you to Israel and I'm going to be his follower. Later on when they go, she has a meeting with Boaz who ends up actually redeeming her, right? But note the language Boab uses, uh, Boaz uses in chapter 2. It says, he said to her, it has been fully reported me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you've left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now Ruth is a Gentile, right? She's outside of God's people, and yet because she has heard about who God is from her mother-in-law, from her husband, from her former father-in-law, she's decided to follow him, and Boaz says, you have come under what? The refuge of the shadow of God's wings, right? It's so interesting to me that in this psalm where David talks about that refuge, the same refuge that his ancestor came under, it's at the end of that psalm that he says, I will sing to you of, of you to the Gentiles, right? Because we know that throughout the Bible, there's this mystery being unfolded that God chooses one people of Israel, but he says, I'm doing this not so that I can save only one nation, but so I can save who? all nations. And it's in that context of the psalm that David says, even the events that happened to me, right? A, a son of the tribe of Judah in one cave in one country, God's salvation for me is something that's going to be extolled to the entire world. God's salvation is going to be revealed to all the world and all the world's going to glorify him. Note what Paul does in Romans 15. In Romans 15, he's going to quote several psalms, not Psalm 57, but note what he says. He says, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, which is the Jews, for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. David, through the, the eye of the Holy Spirit, through, through divine inspiration, sees that the best outcome of his suffering is going to be that God is going to turn that suffering into a reflection of God's own glory that's going to bring salvation to all peoples. And that's what God did, right? Because we know that David is the great, 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 great grandfather of who? 
Jesus, right? Jesus is, is the son of David. And, you know, one more thought as we, as we kind of close this up. In the Bible, we've already said that, that pits and caves, these are things usually associated with what? Death, right? Death. People that hang out in caves are usually dead people. When Abraham died, where did they bury him? In a cave, right? When Jesus died, where did they bury him? In a cave, right? David is sitting in a cave thinking, it looks like my life is over. It looks like it's finally come here and that I'm going to be defeated, but God is on my side. And I think it's so meaningful that on a very dark Saturday, maybe the saddest Saturday in history, when the dead body of Jesus sat inside of a cave and it seemed like all hope was lost, that God was going to use that to accentuate his glory, to raise his glory higher than it had ever been unto all the earth through the resurrection of Jesus, right? And so David, again, works as an echo, a shadow, a picture of the glory that God would bring through his son Jesus. Look in Ephesians chapter 3, and this will be what we close with. He said, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the Gentiles, if you indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, in which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. This is the mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. What I love about Psalm 57, this is the takeaway, is that God is with us as individuals. He's with us through our calamities, but it's all working toward the big picture that God for all eternity has been working out this mystery of salvation so that not just Jesus would be saved, so that not just Israel would be saved, but so that all peoples would be saved. And when we see God's salvation in the small things, it's just an echo of that ultimate salvation, right? Small salvation today, ultimate salvation in eternity. And that's what I see when I see Psalm 57. Thank you all for your attention. I appreciate your comments and, and uh, your participation.